All right, well, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. I want to extend my uh, greeting to you guys as well, uh, and to those of you guys who are online uh, as well. So, hey, just for the record, just to, just to help me, <laughs> how many of you guys are like Christmas music before October 1st? Like five of us. Hey, way to go, you guys. Yeah, I'm with you, okay? So we're all, we're all across the board here. So, um, hey, um, a couple of days ago, um, a couple of days ago, I was sitting with my daughter uh, on the couch and, and, uh, and I was scrolling through my, my phone and, uh, and I was trying to get to the bottom of a text thread with my wife. I think it had accidentally like skipped up or something. So I was scrolling down uh, to, to text my wife and, and uh, my daughter's sitting there. She's four years old and she's, she's watching me do this and she sees something and she goes, hey, that's my name. And I went, oh, like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there it is. And she goes, Eden wants you. And I went, excuse me? And she goes, yeah, I can read. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I didn't expect that. <laughs> where have I been the last two days where you figure this out, you know? Like, that's crazy. Um, you know, I just didn't expect it. Uh, yesterday I went, uh, I went upstairs and I, and I um, went in front of the mirror for a second and, and, uh, and, so I, and I look in the mirror and I see there, there's kind of something on top of my head and I thought, man, that's strange. And, you know, I don't have a lot of hair, and so I, I lean in close, and I see something there, and so I grab the tweezers, and I, and I, I feel it, and I go, yeah, that's, there's resistance there. That's strange. So I, I, like, yanked it out, which I probably shouldn't do just because I need to keep all that I can. I kid you not, I had hair this long <laughs> on the top of my head, and I was like, where'd that come from? Like, I didn't expect that. You know, like, how many times have I buzzed, and it's missed that one hair? You know, that, that, it, that it remains. Uh, here's the deal. Like, life is full of uh, these little things that we don't expect, right? And some of them are fun, um, these fun things, like these fun surprises. Uh, and other things will shock you. This has been a hard week at Salem. And so if you're new, you know, like, it's... it's um, you just need you to know that. It's been a hard week with people in, in the lives of people in our church that are suffering, and, and, uh, and it just kind of feels like there's these layers that kind of keep getting added, and it's just kind of overwhelming, the sense of kind of what's happening. And, uh, you know, Kent mentioned this earlier, and, and Sarah, who's one of our own, you know, her, her husband suffered a, a massive, um, you know, stroke, and, you know, we, you know, as you find out from doctors that there's no recovery, and and that's just not what we expect, is it? And there's suffering, and there's pain, and it's really hard to wrestle with that. Um, Nikki, my wife, and I went to go visit Sarah in the hospital, uh, and on our way home, we were because we, we had met at the hospital, and on our way home in two separate cars, my wife calls me uh, in a panic, and she said, I just got off the phone with my mom, who's in the middle of a stroke. I've been on the verge of tears for about two weeks <laughs> because of how much stuff is going on in the life of our church. There's a lot of suffering, things that are happening right now, um, and it's hard. 
And as I've been processing through all these things that are unexpected, these things that we, that we wouldn't have expected in, in a given day, it just feels like they, they just kind of keep getting added on top of each other one after another. And, and as I've been processing and thinking about, you know, the series that we're in and, and how to be sensitive to that while be sensitive to the text that we're in uh, this morning as well, you know, this line that came to my heart is this, is that suffering brings us close together, Right? very simple, but suffering brings us very close together while at the same time it actually pushes us out. It pushes us back into the world because we're forced to believe the gospel in a new depth, in a new way, and in such a way that it creates an overflow in our lives. And so that anybody that we talk to uh, about what we're going, uh, going through, they get to hear uh, the gospel, right? So um, I want you to take a look. Actually, I'm going to show you a couple of verses here. Um, if you remember this uh, series, we started in this series, Witnesses, which is we're walking through the book of Acts. And, and uh, it started with this, this promise, this gospel promise from Jesus but you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? There's this kind of this cosmic plan, this gospel plan that God is enacting and working through his apostles. It's going to start in Jerusalem, and it's going to go from here to there and ultimately to everywhere, right? And, and God is going to be faithful to that promise in our text. Um, but what we haven't touched on yet is we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, but in Acts chapter 8-1, which is really the inverse of 1.8, so it's easy to remember, we see this, this beginning expansion kind of moving from here to there, uh, out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, he's talking about Stephen, who is, who is the first Christian martyr other than Jesus, uh, in chapter 7. And it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles, right? So if we were to come back to, you know, to our, our board here, right? So we remember that this whole story, you know, kind of begins, right? It begins with this idea of Acts 1-8, right? And it's just, this, this idea that what starts here is going to eventually go everywhere, right? Um, but we get to Acts, you know, 8-1, um, and what do we find is that we actually find that this is the beginning of the story, right? This is the beginning of the expansion from here to there. And we're actually going to go uh, in our story to the city of Damascus, which is about 135 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. So not too far away, but it's outside of known Israel, okay? And here's what's key, though. This is super important, right? Um, is that it's, it's not like the apostles. As we think about the expansion of the church, as the church is growing into the world with the good news of Jesus... Right? Um, what we miss, and it's super easy to miss, is that it's not like the apostles gathered together around a table and said, great, Jesus has this massive plan for the world, so what are we going to do? We're going to church plant, and we're going to multi-site, and we're going to hold this big, massive evangelistic you know, event, and we're, we're going to do all these things. It's actually not what happens. It says that people began to move from here to there as a result of what? Persecution, which is just really another way to talk about suffering. And so when I think about all that we're going through, I don't know what's happening, you know, but I do know that God is, is in the midst of expanding his kingdom, that he's, he's in part helping push us from here to there, 
right? And there's just something about that. And in our text, when we think about this, right, we're going we're gonna to be confronted with this guy whose name is Saul. He's kind of the new character um, in, in, in this being introduced in his story. And for many, for all practical purposes, he's basically um, the antagonist, right? He's the opposition. He's the adversary. He is he's everything that the church is not. And in fact, in fact, what is happening is that as the gospel has grown all the way to Damascus, as people have gone there and they begin to live their lives there, Saul, he says, I'm going to make this journey to Damascus, but his entire intention is actually to get all of the Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem in prison. And so kind of what we're seeing, right, is that as the gospel is expanding and as God's promise is unfolding, the gospel is moving from here to there to everywhere. This is the first journey, the first step or the first city on that journey. And what Saul is trying to do is like he's trying to wrap that movement in his arms and pull it back and say, ah, uh, not, not on my watch, okay? And so that's kind of where we are. But what's going to happen in, in the text this morning is that God is going to show up uh, and in this massive, incredible way. It's one of the most great stories, I think, and one of the best stories about as you see conversion, someone who is totally anti-Jesus become a Jesus follower, right? And so Jesus is going to show up and he's going to radically transform the most unlikely hero of all into this kind of superstar for God's kingdom. And he's going to do it by giving him a new identity right? He's going to radically change his heart. He's going to give him a new family, and he's going to give him a new purpose, okay? So here we are in Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there uh, with us. You can follow along on the screen. Otherwise, if you have your companion journal, it's on page 63. You can follow along there as well. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, right? Not a good start, okay, of the Lord, um, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which we talked about, right? So that he, um, if he found anybody belonging to the way, men or women, this, the way is just a way to reference early Christians in Damascus, um, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, right? And so here's Saul, right? Saul goes to the high priest who has entered into the story many times in the past in the earlier parts of Acts, and, and the high priest grants uh, Paul or Saul's wish, excuse me, his wish, and he gives him these papers. And these papers are basically this, this letter of extradition. So it's this idea that, that Saul now has the authority to leave Jerusalem, right, and to go outside of Israel to these places of faith, uh, and to bring them home and arrest them, right? And that's what these letters ultimately these these letters ultimately are. And so Saul is on his way. He's journeying to Damascus. Look at this. But he has this event, right? This this relational event with Jesus. Chapter three or verse three. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Okay, so if you want to read more about this experience, this is Luke's account of this, right, because Luke is the author of Acts. If you want to read Paul or Saul's own account of this, you can go to Acts chapter 26, and you can read for yourself. What Saul says in Acts chapter 26 is he describes this moment as he says, this, as this light shone, he said it was brighter than the sun. So I want you to imagine, right, this is not like, it's not like Saul and his companions are walking down the path and the road to Damascus and like the cloud shifts and the, the sun is in his face and ah, I wish I had sunglasses, you know, like that's not 
the case. This says it was brighter than the sun. And it makes me think of like the mountain of transfiguration, right? So as Jesus brings a few of his disciples up in this mountain, and as he shows them his true self, what happens? It's so bright that they can't handle it. They can't take it. And it's as if like heaven and earth in this space with Saul overlap. And, and Saul is going to get to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his holiness, his perfection, his beauty, right? This pure light. In fact, it's so blinding, it says that he fell to his knees, okay? Look at verse 4. It says, I'm falling to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a strange question, isn't it? Because who's he persecuting? Jesus. Where's Jesus supposed to be? Either dead or in heaven, <laughs> right? And so, like, this is the guy, you know, that, that Saul's going to encounter this guy, but he doesn't know who it is. And so he asks this very natural question. It's like, who are you? Like, he can't see. He's on the ground. He's covered or, or whatever that looks like. And he's like, who are you? And here comes this response. And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Huh? Did not expect that. <laughs> right? If you're Saul, you're like, I heard rumors or witnesses that have said that you are, you know, that you're raised from the dead and, you know, then you somehow magically disappeared and ascended into heaven. Okay, whatever. And yet here's Jesus standing right in front of him in all of his beauty saying, this is me. I want you just to imagine what it would be like to be in that scenario, in that moment. It'd be pretty powerful, wouldn't it? It's a very powerful moment. And what I think is great, it's interesting to me that, you know, again, and this is in Luke's account, and it's different than Saul's account later in, in chapter 26, but as Luke records this, he basically says, Jesus, you know, there's very little dialogue here, because you would think there'd be natural dialogue and questions, and Jesus says, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting, get up and go to Damascus, and then you'll find out what to do, right? It's very, very reduced interaction right? Um, and it's crazy here, right, that Luke is so concerned because he wants to make sure that he validates the authenticity of anything that he's talking about, that he goes to the detail to describe that there are other witnesses there. It's not like this is some weird supernatural thing that happens just to Saul by himself. They're like, yeah, sure, sure, Saul, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, there's these random guys that are, well, not random guys, it's part of his, his, his party that are traveling with him, right? And imagine this, they hear the voice but don't see anything. Like, how weird is that? Like, like Saul is in the middle of walking and maybe they're bad-mouthing Christians. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> ah! who, who are you talking to? I, don't, I hear somebody, but I don't see anybody. Right? And so Luke goes to this, this effort to make sure that we know that this isn't just Saul. This is an event that other people even heard, right? They hear it. They hear the voice of Jesus, but they can't see him. This very real, very real event that happens in this moment. And what happens then is that Saul, he gets up, he raises, he goes and does what he's supposed to, and he enters into Damascus, right? And so, but what's interesting to me is that he um, says that for three days, like he's blinded, right? So he has no eyesight whatsoever, right? He cannot see. So he has to be led by hand the rest of the way to Damascus, so purely blind in this moment. Um, and then it says, though, that he ate neither food nor drink. Now, in a lot of ways, it's probably just some element of fasting because it doesn't tell us that he had an ailment or anything that he couldn't eat. It's probably like he chose to not eat. But here's what's interesting, I think, 
I, I, and I don't know, I don't know, but here's what I think. I think that Luke and Jesus, therefore, is actually relaying to us that, that Jesus is creating a space for Saul that's in essence like a tomb. Because where was Jesus? In a tomb. For how long? Three days. Did he eat or drink? No, right? Because he was dead. Right? But, I, but I wonder if in this moment, as Jesus is creating the space, he's having this conversation with Saul, Saul now is rearranging all of the thoughts from the previous years. Everything he's been doing has been to work against Jesus and to defame and to destroy the work of the church. And all of a sudden, he's just met Jesus. He has all of these questions going on in his head, like, what in the world just happened? And I wonder is if it's Jesus' way of like reminding Saul, in the pitch blackness, he gives him space to process because he's reminding him that you are spiritually dead. And it's going to take a work of Jesus to enter in and to remove that and to change, to call out of darkness and into a marvelous Light. And really, this is a gospel story, right? Because when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about what was old and dead and corrupt and messy and broken and all of that stuff and all of that glorious, like, just stupor of humanity, right? He takes all of that and he replaces it and gives it something new, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. And if you haven't memorized this verse, it's a great verse to memorize. It says, therefore, if anyone, not just one person, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come, right? And so it's this reminder that there's this internal change, it's a transformation, right? You're not the same being when you give your life to Christ. You are now a new creation and your heart is replaced with a heart of flesh and spirit instead of stone, right? It's this idea of regeneration, being born again, right? And ultimately, I think, in some way, shape, or form, in that three-day period, it doesn't tell us where, but somewhere in that space, Saul eventually submits and surrenders. I got it wrong. You know, this, this Jesus person is the real deal. And so what, what uh, God is going to do now is that he's going to use, that was the interaction between Saul and Jesus, right? And it's this, it's this creating this new identity. It's this, this reshaping and reforming of his internal identity of who he is, making of a new creation. But now he's going to use this guy named Ananias, who's in Damascus, to actually welcome him into this new family, okay? Look at verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Now, we don't know much about Ananias uh, historically. What we basically know is what we learn here in that he's a devout Christian. He's a devout disciple, devout follower of Jesus. We know that because of his posture, right? His posture is this. Uh, God says, hey, Ananias, and he's like, yep, what's up? What do you need? I'm here. I'm ready to go. Right? That's his posture, which, by the way, that's a good posture to have, right? It's a great posture to have, but we'll find that soon and quickly changes, right? right? It's going to soon and quickly change because what he says, he says, he says, I want you to rise up and I want you to go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man. I want to pause there because up until this point, this is an, this is an easy thing. Okay, check out this map. Right? This is a picture of the city of Damascus, uh, which, by the way, is one of the oldest um, 
one of the oldest cities in, in history. Um, that street called Strait, which runs east and west, is still in existence today. It's pretty cool. So if you were to go, you could actually walk that street, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, you got the house of Ananias up in the, the northeast corner up there. And, uh, and so here's what's interesting to me, is that uh, Jesus does not send Saul directly where? To, he doesn't send him directly to Ananias. He sends him to this guy named Judas on a street called Straight, right? Because why? Because there is a part for Ananias to play, right? If somebody just randomly knocked and showed, on, like, showed up at your door and knocked, right? That's a different thing than if God says, here's the deal, I need you to be obedient. It's a two-way street. God has brought Saul to Damascus in a state of blindness, and here's Ananias, this devout guy, and God says, I need you to take a little jaunt, down to the street called Straight, to this house of Judas, where there's this guy named Saul from Tarsus, right? Um, and guess what? You'll know who he is because he will be praying, right? He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight, right? Now, if you if you're Ananias and you're in this moment and, and, and God shows up and said, hey, I need you to go to this house, uh, the house of Judas, and, and meet somebody there, it's pretty, pretty, pretty palatable, right? Okay, so whatever's going on, I need to be obedient, so I go and I show up, and whatever that is, I'm willing to come alongside and, and to do that. It's a pretty kind of basic kind of house call for a pastor, priest, elder type of a thing, right? Um, and yet, as soon as God mentions the name Saul, things radically change. Things radically change. Look at his response in verse 13. It says, but Ananias answered, right? You notice that the word but is a contrast. God's like, hey, I want you to go. And, and automatically, there's the contrast, right? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Okay, what's he talking about? He's talking about reputation, Right? Reputation, right? This is pre, pre-texting. Obviously, we know that, and yet, and yet we really don't know life apart from that, uh, many of us. And so here's this deal. Like, this is pre, pre-texting. Reputation is, is really this grapevine of eyewitness accounts, whether embellished or not, these eyewitness accounts, right, that spread from person to person to person about another person. In many ways, it's actually like gossip and really not good, okay? But Here's what happened, right? Is that Saul had a reputation and it was transferred through the vines of people and a reputation is what people think about you before they ever meet you. Which can either help you if it's good or hurt you if it's bad. And for Saul, it's definitely the latter, right? Because he says this, he says, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, right? You see, Saul's name was synonymous with pain and suffering and death. Is that a good reputation? No, it's a terrible reputation, especially if you're on the other end of that reputation, right? Um, 
here's the deal. So the other day, uh, actually not the other day, this summer, uh, my wife and I had plans um, to go to this uh, kind of neighborhood gathering, like a block party. We were really excited to go because we wanted to meet all of our neighbors. We were really bummed because it was planned on the same night as something else, and that was planned first. So we went as early as we could and stayed as long as we could, and we started talking to all these people from the neighborhood. And it was awesome. It was so fun to get to know. It's like 30 or 40 people like hanging out. And so here we are in this conversation and talking, and somebody says, hey, guys, which house do you guys live in? And we're like, oh, well, we're actually in the, in the brown house down in the middle of the street. And they go, oh, the pastor house. I said, excuse me? I didn't tell anybody that I was, how did you know that I was pastor? And like, is the whole, I'm processing this. And somebody from away goes, hey, wait, which house did you guys say you're in? Oh, they're in the pastor house. What? Here's the deal. People know more about you than you think that they do. I just think it's true, right? Because reputations, right? Reputations precede people. And for Saul, right, it was synonymous with pain and suffering. And if you're Ananias, remember, you are in Damascus. Saul was where? He was in Jerusalem, 135 miles away, right? So if you're Ananias, you go, you know what? I am not okay with what Saul was doing against your people down in Jerusalem, but personally, I was okay. Why? Because he was 135 miles away. Where is he now? He's right here. And guess what, God? He has papers. Ooh. Ooh. I like how he explains all this to God, who, like, who clearly is like omniscient and knows everything. He's like, God, if you don't know, we do this all the time as humans, by the way, don't we? God, if you don't know, he has these papers. He can arrest any single Christian at any single given, any point in time, no matter what. That's a big deal, isn't it? Let's just pretend for a second that you and I in Fargo-Moorhead, what if there's somebody here, as unlikely of a scenario as this is, what if there was somebody here in Fargo-Moorhead who had the exact same authority, that they could arrest any single Christian at any given time, whether just or unjust for any reasons? Do you think that you would be scared? Do you think you'd be fearful? Absolutely right? Because he's a portrait of our humanity. Now, we don't know this, but the papers might even have names on them. So it's like, maybe Ananias' name is on there. Maybe Saul strolls into town, goes to the local synagogue and says, hey, come on out, guys, come on out. Yep, I got my soldiers. Here we go. Bring it out, bring it out, bring it out. Okay, we're going to start with the A's. Ananias, Ananias. Yep, on my list. Take him with. Right? It's scary to think about these types of things. He is a symbol of our humanity. And the reality is, is that when God says that he wants to do something in our life, whether it's big or small, at the end of the day, you and I both know, and sometimes this is a terrifying thing, but you and I both know that when God says to do something, it's going to radically change your life. It's going to change how you live life on a daily basis. And we don't necessarily like that. Yeah, God, do you really, is that really what you want to do? Is that really what you want to do? Here's what I love. Check this out in verse 15. It's like they re-engage in this conversation because he's having all these doubts, and God just starts with this one word. He says, go. You see, what did he say before when he was talking to Ananias? He said, arise and go. You see, when he hears the name Saul, it's like God and, and, and Ananias are having this conversation, and as soon as Ananias, like, he goes, hey, God, or Ananias, he goes, yep, here I am, ready to go, go to Saul. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's like he's risen 
but now he's unwilling to go. This happens in life. This happens in life for all of us. And something I wrestle with this week, and, and guys, we're all on a spiritual journey, right? Every single one of us is in a different place. But the reality is, is that when God says go, it's still hard for devout Christians. No matter how devout, no matter how mature, sometimes when God says go, it's still and always going to be hard. And we know that it's going to radically change the way that we live life, and we don't necessarily like that. But what I love, and we just know this, right? None of us are beyond, none of us are beyond the temptation to pull back and plant our feet in the ground. But what I love about God is that he's not a people pleaser, is he? It's not like he looks at Ananias in this moment, he's like, you know what? Yeah, it's not, you're right, it's not a big deal. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. The Vikings, they're eight and one. I get it, I get it, I get it. You watch your football, I'll find somebody else. That's just the reality, right, for, for each of us, right, is that this is our humanity. And here's the deal. Like, when you think about this, like, this would be in the back of his mind. I'm guessing this is in the back of his mind because it would be in the back of my mind, and it's the question, why? Why, God, why are you doing this? Like, why, why, why would you pick him, and why would you pick me? Now, the reality is that God, when he says go, does not need to explain go. But here's the reality. When you think about this, and I, and I get this, this is not true all the time, and this is a challenging thing, okay? This is a challenging thing for myself and probably for you, and so I want to be really clear. I don't think this is all of the time, but I do think that sometimes when we ask the question why, it's our fear being masked as knowledge. Because we just think, well, if I just knew why, then I would do it. The reality is, is that God's like, yeah, okay, here you go, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, no, I still don't want to do it. Right? It doesn't matter necessarily the why. It's just our fear behind it. When God says go, he doesn't have to explain why. Here's what's great. In this text, he does. He does explain why. He says this, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, this is a huge reveal. This is a huge reveal as scripture is unfolding because for thousands and thousands of years, right, it's been about God's chosen people, the Jewish people. Now, other people from other ethnicities and races and cultures could be brought into that, but it's always through forms and regulations. Now, what God is saying is that we're going to remove that stuff and it's going to go to everybody. All of the people who don't look like you, don't sound like you, don't talk like you, all those people get it for free. This is radical change, right? This meta-narrative that God has been unfolding since the beginning of time to make things right is now creating a paradigm shift. And, and, and God and Jesus want to take this guy named Saul and help make that happen. It's crazy. So it makes sense that there's a lot going on in this. So if you're Ananias, maybe, 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 maybe you can wrap your mind around this conceptually. Go, okay, 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 I get it. You want to grow your kingdom, you want to grow your family. I get that. But, but here's the deal. I can wrap my mind around it, I can't wrap my heart around it. Because there's all this suffering. There's all this suffering that Saul has caused. It just doesn't make sense. And God goes on in verse 16. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, if you're Ananias in that moment, do you take a step back and go, ha, I see what you did there, God. Kudos to you. Yep, now I get it. He caused 
X amount of suffering and you're going to do the same to him. That's fair. I get it. Kudos to you. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, this emotional weight has been lifted from my shoulders. And the reality is, is that that's not the way that God works. It's not vindictive. It's not recompense. It's not, here's how much you've caused in the world, so therefore I bring that back on you. Oh, and by the way, you remember Stephen? That was especially brutal, so add 3% interest. It's not like God has this cosmic scale that he's constantly weighing out suffering because that then would negate the idea of grace that shows up exactly where you are, no matter how much broken, no matter how deep, no matter how wide, it doesn't matter. That's what grace is. And that's what God brings into the life of Saul. By the way, suffering is part of the life of every single Christian. Why? Because it's the way of the cross. It's something that you and I should expect in the world because Jesus with his disciples said, hey guys, by the way, long before the world hated you, they hated who? Me, Christ, right? That's just the way that it is, right? Suffering is going to play a huge part in Saul's life. Check this out in in, uh, John chapter 19, verse 17. It says, this is of Jesus. It says that he went out of the city. He's carrying his cross, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. That same word bear is the word that Jesus says, or God says of Saul, he will bear my name. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. You think, I, I, think it's, I think this is interesting, guys. It's so, I think it's easy for us as humans to get so focused and caught up in, God's, in our sense of God justice, and we rejoice in God's justice more than we rejoice in God's kingdom expansion. You see, we'd rather God drop the hammer on somebody than give people grace and extend the gospel into the world And what happens is that Ananias, in this text, he finally, it seems, finally embraces God's call. He goes to Saul, and he meets him in this place. He lays his hands on him to pray over him, and he says two of the most powerful words you could expect in this moment, and he says, Brother Saul. See, Ananias had to look past everything that Saul had done. And he had to choose to embrace him and welcome him into the family. That's not an easy thing to do, but that's the gospel. And that's the Jesus way where we look at people and we say, you are fully known and you are fully loved. No matter what your story is, we call you into our family and to look like Jesus Christ. And as he prays, then it says that something like scales fall off of Saul's eyes, and it's as if the tomb door is rolled away, and Saul sees for the first time. He's got a new identity, he's got a new family, and he's got a new purpose. And I won't read it, but in his next few verses, in 19 through 22, here's what happens, is that Saul spends some time with the disciples in Damascus, and then it says he immediately went into the synagogues and started proving that Christ was true. (laughs) Like, talk about 180. This is the guy who came with letters. Ooh. And now, he's saying, I got it wrong. And everybody's confounded and astounded and amazed. Because why? Because Jesus showed up and changed his life. And his story now became the evidence that Jesus was real. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, which, by the way, is if you think about, if you think about this guy named Saul, right? <clears throat> That's where we started. We started with this Acts 1-8 gospel journey. The, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth kind of a thing. And then we see this guy named Saul, right, who is the, this main adversary. Do you want to know who God is going to use as one of the major players in the gospel expansion? It's a guy named Paul, you know who Paul is? It's the same person as Saul, except you just switch the first letter. <laughs> it's the same person as Saul, except this is the old creation, this is the new. And you see Saul will eventually, first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. He took the gospel in a massive way to everywhere. Pretty cool when you start to think about who Saul actually was. You know, I started this story, I started today just talking about suffering uh, and the things that we don't expect. You know, uh, this last week I was in visiting uh, Ken in the hospital and uh, the elders were there with me. We were praying over Ken and, and just, just praying and asking God for healing and, and the doctor showed up. He stuck his head in, saw us and like quickly backed out, right? Um, came back later and he said, hey, what were you guys doing? And we said, hey, well, man, we were praying. We believe that God answers prayer and that he wants to heal. And, and uh, so we were laying our hands on him and asking God to heal. And he said, I've never seen that before. Not what he expected. I've never seen that before. And then we had this like 15-minute conversation. I don't even know if he had anything to do that day. It's crazy. 15, 20 minutes later, he goes by and we're, having, we're talking about faith and religion and life and family and all these things. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh gosh, I got to go somewhere, right? So he goes, he's like, I got to check on Ken. So he goes, he starts touching his tummy, which is if you're not a doctor, don't do that, right? So like, he's like touching his tummy and trying to figure out like, if anything's wrong. And in the middle of that, he steps back and he looks at Ken and I see it from over here. And he goes, so if you're a pastor, what do you think about me and my soul? Didn't expect that. I was like, this is how he's processing the most important question he'll ever ask. He didn't know how to ask it. How do you, what do you think about me and my soul? You see, our story has so much power. Guys, when I think about, when I think about Saul, when I think about the power of story, because that's a prime opportunity for us to enter in with the gospel, which we did, right? But I think that so oftentimes we look at this and we use this as our, as our platform and we go, man, I wish I had a story like Paul. I wish I had a story like Paul. Because like, people are like, hey, tell me about Jesus. You're like, well, yeah, you know, he, he came, he died. There's forgiveness of sins and eternal life and heaven and, you know, my story is really not very good. You should talk to Paul. His story is way better than mine. His story is way, way, way better than mine. You should go talk to Paul. Let me tell you this. Guys, if you, don't, if you remember one thing as you leave today, remember this, okay? There are no boring conversion stories. But, contrast, there are boring storytellers. <laughs> Can I get an Amen. Because we can take the world's greatest, most powerful story and make it lame and dull. Tell me about Jesus. Nah. 
You see, this is the story. It's incredible. And we look at Saul and become Paul, and we think, man, there was so much sin in his life, murder and persecution. I don't have that. Guys, there's a big difference between sin and separation. Because everybody has sin in their life, and some of it's small and some of it's big. You can't compare it. What makes your story powerful is not the sin details of your life. It's that you were separated from God. And now you aren't. That's what makes our story so stinking powerful and so stinking great. It's so amazing and incredible. And when we make it lame and when we lose sight of the vulnerability and the authenticity and really understanding our story in the deepest parts, whether you are five or 55 or 85, it doesn't matter because our stories are the exact same as Paul because they started in the exact same place. Embrace that. Allow your story to be powerful. You know, this whole thing started with with suffering again as we talked about suffering, and there's a lot of suffering in our church, which is very unexpected, and yet maybe it should be to be expected because when we focus on the gospel and his kingdom, we know that there are adversaries and, and challenges to all of that. But here's my thought is that for each of us as individuals and collectively as a, as a church, we have a new identity, we have a new family, and we have a new purpose. And you and I, in the same way as Paul, we come back over here, we go, it's also us. We are continuing this Acts 1-8 gospel journey, and I want you to embrace it. Ask you to. I'll give you these three questions, and the worship team will come and sing a song, and we'll leave. First question is this it's simple. What's your story? Right? Your story is powerful. Let it be powerful. Right? Find ways to talk about Jesus that, that demonstrate his extrav- extravagant love. And if your story was when you came to know Christ at five, you might have to work a little bit harder than coming to Christ at 55, but your story is equally powerful. And let it be powerful. So what's your story? Second question is this, what's your reputation? Because that can either help you or hurt you. In the body here, but also in the world. And the last one is this, what's your proclamation? Can I ask you this, what do you talk about most? Because the more we understand the gospel and our story, the more easy, more easy and natural it will be to overflow that into the world, whether you're in heart deep in the midst of suffering or in the best joy of your life. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this morning and as we finish our time in worship, Lord, I know that we're going to sing Glorious Day, which is an upbeat song. It's an exciting song. And in the excuse me, in that song, some of the words are this, you called me out of the grave and I came running. Lord, that's the gospel story. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of how great and good your extravagant love is and the way that that shows up in our life. And maybe for some of us, we never maybe ever made that decision. Maybe some of us are just walking through the mundane and jumping through the hoops of church and Jesus and and parents and, and whatever. But I pray that you would deepen us today. Lavish your love on us. Wash your grace over us. Remind us that our story is powerful because Jesus Christ is powerful. And because our separation from you was nothing that we could ever cross. 
but it's only by the blood and the works of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, that we get a new identity, a new family, and a new purpose. Lord, may we rejoice, may we give you all glory and honor, and let us sing our hearts out as we finish today as a great thank you to you. Amen.